Now, we are going to have the first in our readings today. Um, today, Johnny is going to be preaching to us from Exodus chapters 1 and 2, and I will read from the first chapter. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's very good to see you all. Good morning, John. Let me add my welcome to, to Samuels. My name is Johnny. If we haven't met before, I'm the pastor and part of the leadership team here at Hebron. And as Samuel mentioned, we're going to be looking together at Exodus chapters 1 and 2. And uh, I'm going to read uh, chapter 2 in its entirety now for us. It'd be helpful to me and I think to you if you do have a Bible to have that open as I read. Um, But the words will appear on the screen behind me at the same time. Let's read together from Exodus chapter 2. 
Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call for you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you've come home today so soon? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Before we think about that and chapter 1 together for a few minutes, let me lead us in prayer. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you that the Bible, that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments were inspired by you. 
And we ask now that as we think on this part of those scriptures together, you'd please be at work by your Holy Spirit in each one of us, helping us to know you better and to love you more deeply. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are starting this new series on Sunday mornings. We're going to be studying the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus between now and just before Easter. That's our plan. And before we even start that, I'm guessing that some of us here might feel we already have a sense of what Exodus is all about. For some of us, Exodus is all about big, dramatic events. Proportionately, the book tends to take up quite a large chunk of every children's Bible ever written, for example. And it isn't hard to see why. There's the ten plagues. There's the parting of the Red Sea. There's the giving of the Ten Commandments through fire and smoke on Mount Sinai. Exodus is a book of dramatic events. Others of us might have the sense, though, that Exodus isn't quite so much about the events per se, as it is about a key character in those events. It's all about Moses. And you might have that sense without ever having opened the book at all, in fact. Because you see, Hollywood have made hay with the book of Exodus through the years, and each time they've tended to go really big on the character of Exodus. In the 50s, it was all about Charlton Heston playing Moses like he was a gunslinging cowboy as he was handed the Ten Commandments. In the 90s, for others of us, I guess, more home turf, it was all about Moses as the prince of Egypt who just needed to believe if miracles were really going to happen. And more recently, Christian Bale has portrayed Moses as a Batman in sandals, really, a sort of shadowy anti-hero figure. And so we have it. Exodus is either about grand events, we might think, or Exodus is all about the grand hero, Moses. And we'll see in the coming weeks that the grand events and that the grand character of Moses are really important in the book of Exodus, but neither in themselves are the main point. See, the book of Exodus isn't ultimately about the grand events. It isn't ultimately about Moses first and foremost. Exodus is all about God. The whole book was written to help us know God better. Now that might sound like quite a generic thing to say. I thought the whole Bible was about God, you might think, and you'd be right, it is. But Exodus in particular makes a big, big deal of God revealing himself, showing people who he is, what he is like. And he does that, he reveals himself through grand events through his dealings with his servant, Moses. So he is a God who, in chapters 1 to 18 of Exodus, delivers his people from slavery in the Exodus. He is a God who, chapters 19 to 25, demands their obedience to him as he gives them the Ten Commandments. Ultimately, he is a God who, chapters 26 to 40, dwells among his people in the tabernacle, deliverance, demands, and dwelling. And that whole story, it is meant to help us know God more deeply and relate to him rightly. And that's what I hope this book is going to do for us as a church family, even as we only study the first portion of it over the coming few weeks. 
And it is, I think, important we have that big picture of the book in mind as we step into these opening couple of chapters. Because you see, in these opening chapters, chapters 1 and 2, God doesn't seem to be center stage at all. Let's start our time by thinking about why under our first heading this morning. That heading is, even when human powers are opposed to God, he always keeps his promises. Now, you might have noticed as we started reading a few minutes ago that the whole of Exodus starts at a bit of a low ebb for God's people. They're great in number, chapter 1, verse 7, but they're living in Egypt and they're living under the rule of a new king. And we're told that that new king, or Pharaoh, verse 8, doesn't know Joseph. Joseph, if you can remember the story from the prequel to Exodus, the book of Genesis, he was the man with the the, the technicolor dream coat. He had been sold into slavery by his brothers. He was carted off to live as a slave in Egypt, but ended up rising through the ranks and ended up becoming the prime minister, effectively, of Egypt. He was successful. He was influential in Egypt. And the reason the author of Exodus name-checks Joseph here is to let us know that all of that influence, all of that notoriety, well, it's all been forgotten. Rather than having any kind of privileged position in Egyptian society, God's people are in fact deemed to be a bit of a threat. Notice that with me in chapter 1, verse 9. Pharaoh said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. So to make sure they don't end up growing too numerous, maybe even staging some kind of coup or or, or running off altogether, The king of Egypt, this pharaoh, turns God's people into his slaves. Things really are at a low ebb. And yet, as we read on through the rest of the chapter, they only seem to get lower still. The year 2024 marks the 30-year anniversary of the Rwandan genocide. I'm guessing some of us in this room will remember that happening. Within 100 days from the 6th of April 1994 at least 800,000 people were killed. 800,000 in 100 days. That's around 7% of the total Rwandan population at the time, the vast majority of whom belonged to one particular tribe, the Tutsi tribe. It was an ethnically motivated slaughter. And even now, 30 years on, the details of that genocide are so, so dark as to still send a cold shiver down your spine. And in Exodus chapter 1, it's just that kind of darkness that takes center stage. Read with me from verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shephra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter she shall live. Pharaoh commissions all of the midwives from among God's people to kill any male-born child. It's just an awful thing to do. 
And as that program doesn't achieve all he hopes it will achieve, he ramps the slaughter program up even further. Verse 22, Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that's born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And so it isn't just the midwives now. Everyone is recruited into Pharaoh's death squad. It really is a horrible beginning to a story, isn't it? And yet it isn't an unusual one. The idea that God's people would be singled out like that. It's quite common throughout the Bible. And in fact, it's quite common in the world today. We thought during our prayer meeting on Wednesday evening here in the church building about Christians living in Iran at the moment. Iranian Christians may be banned from education, may lose their jobs, be imprisoned for trusting in Jesus. Any women who become Christians in Iran are likely to be divorced by their husbands, to have their children taken away from them, and to be very violently punished if their faith is discovered. And Iran is just a snapshot of many, many other contexts around the world today, from Afghanistan to North Korea, where Christians face real hostility for no reason other than for identifying with the God of the Bible. Now, of course, we don't experience anything like the same degree of hostility here in the UK. But it would be naive, I think, to assume that the underlying issue doesn't apply in in liberal democracies like Scotland. Think of the student or the young adult returning home to live with family over the Christmas break. Family who don't know Jesus and who day by day, week by week, chip away with belittling comments about their Christian faith. Or of the Christian who refuses to behave in the same way as their colleagues or friends when it comes to lifestyle choices, perhaps. Oh, you think you're better than us, do you? You Christians are all the same. It's far, far more subtle here, of course, of a completely different degree than what we see in Exodus 1 or elsewhere around the world, but not different in type. Hostility towards God's people is the kind of thing that will come and that can surprise us, can even unsettle us when it does. But it is, I think, important we clock that hostility to God isn't the whole story in Exodus 1. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a carnival or a fair before. I used to love going to a carnival when I was a little boy. The the flashing lights and the noise and the the, the rides and the Russian roulette of whether you'll end up with a dodgy tummy from eating a hot dog from the slightly dubious food van. And uh, along with food poisoning, it was a pretty safe bet at a carnival that you would find the game whack-a-mole. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say whack-a-mole? It's a game where you're handed a jumbo-sized soft hammer or a club, and you stand in front of a great big table that's got holes cut out of it, and a stuffed toy, a toy mole, pops up out of one of those holes, and the name of the game is to try and whack the mole when it comes out of the hole before it disappears back into the table. And as soon as you do, another mole pops up out of another hole, and you whack it, and this game sounds more violent when you put it into words than it does when you're playing it. But the chaos is that as soon as you hit one mole... Another pops up, and another pops up, and another pops up, and you can never quite keep on top of it. Now, we've already seen in Exodus chapter 1 that the king or the pharaoh of Egypt makes it his business to snuff out God's people. And those attempts were brutal. They were absolutely horrible. But as well as highlighting Pharaoh's brutal opposition to God's people, the author, I think, also wants us to see that Pharaoh is playing whack-a-mole. Each time he hits one mole, another pops up, 
and another and another. And in each of his attempts to snuff out God's people, well, God's people are irrepressible. Just trace that through with me. Happens in his first attempt, this attempt to work God's people into submission, where we read verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. He tries working them to death, and that doesn't do the job. And so he tries again in this command to the Hebrew midwives. They are to destroy all male children. But, verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let male children live. Pharaoh's trying to snuff out God's people, but each time he's being thwarted. And in fact, rather than being snuffed out, well, the opposite happens. They keep growing. Now, what are we meant to take from all of that? Well, there is a clue. Uh, Two clues, actually. They come at the very beginning and at the very end of our passage for this morning. You might have thought I was being a bit ambitious by having such a long reading today. My thanks to Samuel for bearing with me and reading the first chapter whilst I read the second. The reason for looking at chapters one and two together, though, is that they are bookends. And they are bookended by the same idea. It's an idea that explains, I think, what we're meant to take from these chapters. Just notice that with me. Firstly, look at the very beginning of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Then as we read on to verse 5, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Now, it doesn't sound like an especially rip-roaring way to begin a story like Exodus, but it is significant. What the author's doing is identifying this story, the story of Exodus, and all that's going to come with what's already happened. Because you see, God had made a promise all the way back in the book of Genesis, a promise to his servant Abraham that he would make Abraham's descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky or than the, 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 the grains of sand on the seashore that those descendants would live in their own land and that God himself would dwell among them and would bless them. Now, the eagle-eyed among you might notice that Abraham's name isn't mentioned in Exodus chapter 1, but his grandson's name is. Verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Or verse 5, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. The author's locating this whole story within the realms of God's promises to his people. Now, you might well think I'm reading too much into the mention of one name, that name Jacob, in these opening verses. If that's the case, look on with me to the end of chapter 2, if you would, thank you. And read with me from verse 24 of chapter 2. And God heard the people's groaning, we read. And God remembered, what? His covenant with Abraham with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God remembered his covenant, his promise to Abraham. The idea there isn't that God had somehow forgotten about it or or overlooked it. It's that he brought it to his mind, if you like, in order to act on it. And it's as much as to say that this whole story and all that is to come in the book of Exodus... It's rooted in God's promises to his people. 
And I wonder if you can see how that changes the complexion of these opening chapters in Exodus. See, the reason it looks like Pharaoh's playing whack-a-mole is that he isn't just trying to snuff out any group of people. He's trying to snuff out God's people. And with them, God's promise. And the point we're meant to take from his inability to do so is you just can't do that. People might try to undermine him, to, to, to thwart him, to oppose him. But each and every time, they will come up short. Why? Because God always keeps his promises. And not in a clinical sort of way. In a very, very personal way. I wonder if you noticed that in that final verse at the end of chapter 2. God saw the people of Israel... And God knew. He sees his people in this dire situation in Egypt. Just as he sees his people in dire situations all around the world today. In Iran, in Afghanistan, in North Korea. He sees them and he knows what they need. And even when it looks as though he might be absent. He is not. He will always keep his promises. And I wonder if you can see how that knowledge might help us too. One of the problems we can sometimes face as Christians, if you are a Christian, is that we get upset with God for not keeping promises that he never made to us in the first place. So we get frustrated with God when life gets hard because we think he isn't keeping his end of the bargain. You know, I followed you, I gave my life to you, God. Why haven't you come through for me? Why is life still hard? Well, the thing is, God hasn't promised to make life easy for people as soon as they follow him. It's quite the opposite, in fact. Following Jesus is cross-shaped, he says. It's painful. But Exodus 1 and 2 is showing us, I think, that he is not ambivalent to that pain. And that even when things seem unclear, we can trust him to keep the promises that he has made. His promise to build his church such that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. His promise that if you are a Christian, he will never leave you. Listen, he will never leave you or forsake you if you've trusted in him. His promise to take his people safely home to heaven and a new creation as they stick with him. So listen, even when it looks as though he might be absent, whether on a global scale, on a national scale, on a very, very personal level, he sees you. He knows you, and he always, always keeps his promises. Now, if Exodus 1 is showing us that God keeps his promises, well, Exodus chapter 2 gives us a sense of where we ought to look for assurance of that fact. So if we find ourselves doubting God's reliability, Unsure of whether he really is going to keep his promises to us. It shows us where to look for proof that he really is good to his word. And we're going to think about that more briefly under our final heading. Even when human powers are opposed to God, he always keeps his promises and does so supremely through his appointed rescuer. Now, Exodus 2, you might have noticed, is made up of three discrete snapshots, three short stories, if you like. The first of which, from verses 1 to 10, is a particularly famous one, and it's a favorite in children's Bibles. After Pharaoh's command to destroy all Hebrew babies, we're told about the birth of one particular baby at the beginning of chapter 2. 
His mother nurses him and manages to keep him quiet until he reaches three months old, which itself is no mean feat. But at that point, it's too difficult to keep him under wraps. And so she takes the desperate step of making a basket and floating the baby on the Nile. And just pause for a moment and consider the fact that that was the safest course of action in her mind. What does that tell you about how desperate things had become for Hebrew babies in Egypt? Seemingly by chance, though, Pharaoh's daughter is bathing in the river and finds the basket. Verse 5. She takes pity on the child, at which point Moses' sister, who's been waiting in the wings, makes the pretty bold suggestion. Verse 7. Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And miraculously, Pharaoh's daughter agrees. Moses' sister is able to return Moses to his mum. It is a remarkable set of circumstances, isn't it? From the desperation of floating your child in a basket on a river, because that's safer than keeping him at home, to being able to bring him home, to bring him up safely, being paid to do so by the sanction of the royal palace. At which point the author fast-forwards things to the second snapshot from verses 11 to 15. From Moses the defenseless infant to Moses, the defender of his people. Read with me again, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, despite being raised in the royal palace, Moses takes his stand with God's people. He sees them, we're told, in Exodus 2, as his people. And he strikes down one of the Egyptians in order to save him. But God's people don't seem to see it that way. The following day, as he steps in to mediate between two Israelites who are fighting each other, they throw Moses' actions back at him. Verse 14, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Moses is spooked, realizes he needs to run and hide if he isn't going to get into trouble for striking the Egyptian down. And so we move into the third snapshot from verses 16 to 22. This one happens whilst Moses is on the run. He's in the land of Midian, sitting at a well, verse 15, when he witnesses some women trying to water their animals, but being prevented from doing so by some shepherds. At which point, Moses steps in, looking as close to Charlton Heston as you will ever see him. Verse 17, the shepherds came and drove them away. Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Three snapshots, three discrete stories, one after the other, that at first glance seem to be fairly loosely slung together. But on closer look, well, they aren't random. Of course, they tell us what happens sequentially, but they do also have something in common, I think, and I wonder if you can spot what it is. They're each of them rescue stories. Take the second story, for example. It is a messy rescue. It might even seem morally ambiguous to us, but it is a rescue. As Moses strikes down the Egyptian in verse 12, that striking down well, that's the same word used later in Exodus of God striking down the firstborn in Egypt as part of the Passover. And if you still aren't convinced, we read it later in the story in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7. 
And there, Moses is said to have given salvation to God's people by stepping in for one of them here in Exodus chapter 2. This is a rescue story. We're meant to see it as that. Likewise, the third story, as Moses stands up to the shepherds, we're told that Moses, verse 19, he delivered the woman out of the hands of the shepherds. And again, that's an echo of the same thing that will happen later in the book of Exodus, or a foreshadow, rather, delivering his people from the hands of the Egyptians. See, in the very little we're told about Moses so far, it's already being introduced, the idea that he is a rescuer. And even this first story of this baby in the first ever Moses basket, well, that's a story of rescue too. Not one performed by Moses, but performed for Moses by God. Where am I getting that from? Well, it's hinted at by quite how extraordinary the events are, quite how much of a turnaround happens. But it might also help to know that the word we have translated in verse 3 as basket into which Moses was placed and put on the river, that's used in one other place in the Bible, that, that word. Well, at least I could only ever find one other use of that word in the Bible. It's in Genesis chapter 6 to 9. And there it isn't describing a small basket, small enough for a baby to hide in it. The word is translated there as ark. The vast ark that Noah used to escape, not a river, but a flood. Moses' situation isn't a coincidence. Just as Noah was, he is being carefully rescued, carefully protected by God. The idea in all three of these stories in Exodus 2, it seems to me, although it isn't fully formed for us at this point in Exodus yet, it is actually pretty clear. It's that this God, this promise-making, promise-keeping God, well, he's going to keep his promise to his people through a rescuer, a rescuer whom he has appointed and raised up for the role. And that does enable us to take a step further, I think, in applying Exodus 1 and 2 to ourselves, actually, because God's promise to individual Christians today isn't exactly the same as his promise to Abraham. He hasn't even promised to make membership of the Christian church in Scotland as numerous as the sand on the seashore. What he has promised to do, though, is to rescue a people for himself through his appointed rescuer, not this time Moses, but the one to whom Moses pointed, through Jesus Christ. And that does mean that if we are struggling for assurance, if we are uncertain about what God is doing in the world, uncertain even about what he's doing in our lives, whether he might have forgotten us, well, we can take assurance. We can look to his rescuer. We can look to the cross because there, this promise-making, promise-keeping God of the universe, he showed himself to be so fiercely committed to keeping this promise of rescue that he sent his own son to be that rescuer who this time wasn't protected by a basket or even by an ark, but this time would be that ark so that we might be protected from the judgment that we deserve if we are in him. And that means that as you look at the world around you, as you consider your own life and wonder what on earth God might be doing in all of it, before you're led to doubt or to complete despair even, 
let me please encourage you, as Exodus 1 and 2 would encourage each of us, to trust that God really does keep his promises. And if you want proof of that, then look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps you're here this morning and wouldn't describe yourself as being a Christian and might be thinking that none of this really applies to you because God hasn't made any such promises to you, so it doesn't really matter if he keeps his promises or not. This is irrelevant as far as you're concerned. Let me please just say to you this morning, if that is you, with all love, that you're wrong. That God has made promises that pertain to you. He has promised, for example, to one day renew this broken world and to make all that is wrong right again. He's promised that anyone might go there, not just a a special people, not even an ethnic group, but anyone. The step that every person must take in order to benefit from that promised rescue, though, is to acknowledge that you need to be rescued. That you, along with every other person on this planet, have rebelled against your maker. Just like Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 1, you've opposed him and his purposes in the world and in your life. And yet asking him for his forgiveness, turn from that rebellion to trust in and to follow him. If you've never done that before, let me please encourage you to take hold of his promises for yourself, to grab them with both hands. And you can do that by trusting in him even today. Let me lead us in prayer as we come to a close. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you this morning that you are a God who makes and who keeps promises. Lord, we acknowledge before you now that other powers in our world can often seem more real, more tangible, more powerful to us as we look at the world we live in, than even you are. And yet we thank you and praise you for the reminder from Exodus 1 and 2 that they are most definitely not. And we pray that you would please enable each one of us to trust that to be true. That you are at work, even in what might look like chaos. And that you will always, always keep your promises. Help any of us here, Lord, who are struggling to believe that this morning, to take assurance as we look on, as we think on the cross of Jesus Christ. And we ask all of this in trusting ourselves into your care and do so in the name of Jesus. Amen.